good to see everyone here. And for those of you who are visitors, I see a few new faces here. We're glad that you joined us this morning. And um, man, I hope you feel at home quickly here and that we can help in any way get you settled or answer any questions. Um, for the last few weeks, we've been in this series called We Are Citizens and uh, just looking at some of the values and the, the things that make us who we are. Um, like Bob was saying, we're new, and so we're just trying to figure out what is it that this church is about, Citizens Church. And so the first week we started out by looking at what does it mean to be a disciple. You know, we want to be focused on making disciples. And we talked about how baptism and teaching are a big part of that calling to be disciple makers. And last week we talked about living out the gospel. Just about the idea that the gospel impacts us. We're obviously we're saved through the gospel, but it also is the power that we have to actually live for Christ in, you know, the places where we go to work or where we go to school or wherever it is that uh, we find ourselves during the week. And um, this week we're talking about simple practices. And, um, you know, you might be asking, is it, you know, are we simple just because simple is kind of trendy right now? Like tr uh, everything's about simplicity, right? Um, Apple has been selling simplicity for a few decades now, and so it's kind of caught on everywhere. You know, it's like, is this the trendy thing that we're doing? Maybe a little bit, but not totally. Um, hopefully today we'll kind of look at that and see that there's reason actually behind the simplicity that we've chosen to put into practice here. And life just in general is complicated. Um, maybe you could debate whether it's more complicated now than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, I'd probably say that it was. I was, I was seeing some st statistics online about complexity, and it was even just talking about the grocery store, how back in the 90s, Yes, I was a teenager in the 90s, okay? In the 90s, if you'd go into a grocery store, there would be like seven or 8,000 items in there. Now, when you go in, they say on average, a grocery store has 40 to 50,000 items in there, okay? So there's just like a complexity of choice and a variety that is like maybe unseen ever before in history, which comes with blessings, but it also comes with its uh, drawbacks as well. And... Life itself has also gotten really complex and more and more um, society is showing how people are struggling with understanding what is the meaning for their life, um, what is their purpose for being here. The, the rise in depression and suicide is mounting at, at rates that they've never seen before. And um, even this week I, I heard a guy talking about the, the rise of anxiety and depression and how it's almost exactly linked to the invention of the smartphone, right? And of all these different types of apps that have got, caused people to connect in really super meaningful ways, but have also come with other problems as well, right? So the complexity of life and the world that we live in has in many ways uh, made things difficult and hard. And so when we come to this idea of practicing uh, simplicity or simple practices. One of our values there is simple practices. What are we talking about? Well, if you look at uh, Webster's Dictionary, there's a number of different definitions, but there was four main ones that came out. And one is this, the state of being simple. It's not always helpful when they're actually using the word that you're trying to define in the definition, right? So the state of being simple, 
Um, the second one would be like folly or silliness, right? Some person is simple-minded. They're kind of silly or they're um, full of folly. Freedom from pretense of guile. And then the last one is directness of expression or clarity. Okay, and so when we come to this idea of simple practices, that's really the definition that we want to hold on to. This idea of a directness of expression or clarity. Clarity in what we're doing, clarity in our purposes. Obviously, we've spent multiple weeks talking about clarity related to the gospel, but religion, Christianity isn't immune to it, but religion in general has a way of bringing complexity to our lives. And the religions of the world are really good at adding um, things to do to your life. So if you are a Hindu and you want to um, move forward in, in your life, you want to do good things, you want to make sure that you're helping the poor, you're doing all these things so that ultimately your goal and your hope is that you'll enter into you know, a reincarnated, reincarnated state of bliss or nirvana, right? That's the goal. You want to get to that place. Or if you are a, a Muslim, they've got the, the five pillars of Islam, that if you practice those five pillars, you hope that all the good that you do, it essentially is like on this scale and it's tipping over and that when you go to, um, you know, af- to the afterlife with Allah, he looks at all your good deeds and you're able to enter into paradise, hopefully. And so all these things that you want to do, you want to do, you have to do all these things that you're supposed to do so that you can kind of, the outcome is a good outcome in eternity after life. And Christianity, in many ways, has often fallen into that same category. And many people would maybe even challenge you if you said, oh, Christianity is not about things to do, but they would say, well, don't you have to go to church? Don't you have to tithe? Don't you have to witness? Don't you have to, you know, be involved in missions? And down the line we go, what's the difference between Christianity and every other religion that's out there? And we want to look at some passages today that actually speak directly to that. They speak to this idea of the enticement of religion and of doing things. And then it also talks about what actually Jesus called us to and what did he call us to become a part of and how does that all fit into this idea of simple practices. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 23. We're going to look at these verses that we Nicole just read. And in this, in this first section of verses, Matthew 23 verses 1 through 4, Jesus actually addresses head-on this idea of religion and specifically in in his context in that first century there. So Matthew 23, starting in verse 1, it says this, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So in this passage, if you would read through all of chapter 23, this is probably Jesus' most stinging and obvious rebuke of the religious leaders. Now, obviously, Christ came for you know, all, the whole Jewish nation, nation, which included religious leaders and included lay people, everybody. But here he's coming to the religious leaders and he's saying, you are putting a burden on people. And he's not saying like that uh, this, 
the structure that is in place, the fact that there are religious leaders. He's not saying that that's a bad thing. Sometimes we can, we can go there. It can seem easy to say that the structure is maybe the bad thing that, that is happening. But here he actually says that, you know, when they come and they teach and they sit on Moses' seat, you should listen to them because what they're doing is actually what God has called them to do. They are revealing the law and God's teachings, which are all good and right things. They come from God. But he says, the problem is that they add a weight. They add a burden, right? They add to what God has actually communicated to us as his people. They make it more difficult for people to connect with God because like we said, life is complex. Life was still complex in the first century. There may not have been 40,000 items in the market, but life was complex and connecting with God is difficult just for any human being because of the sin barrier. But now he's saying not only do they have that complexity that makes it difficult to connect with God, now they're adding to it. They are making it even more difficult. And so this is what Jesus had a major problem with because he knew that, man, we don't need more than there is already to separate us from God. And we saw this in in the book of Acts. If you were a part of our study with Acts we did this summer, we saw that that was actually, it was a temptation that the early believers had. And so in Acts 15, we talked about the Jerusalem Council. This is when like they heard that Gentiles were getting saved and the Jews that were there, they said, well, now that they're saved, they've got to realize that there is something else to do, right? We need to tell them that this is kind of how Christianity works. You do these things. And so in Acts 15, verse 10, Peter finally addresses the audience there. And you guys will probably remember this. He says, now, therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter says, why are we going to do what we couldn't even do from the beginning? You know, as, as, as Jews, as first century Jews, they knew what it was like to be under this heavy weight of having to do the right things to be right with God. And now here they are, these believers, they've heard this message of grace and the message of Christ and what he's done for them. And their first reaction is like, hey, we had to do the different stuff. So now these guys got to do the different stuff. It's almost like when you were a kid, I don't know if you remember this, but you want everything to kind of be like equal, right? Like if they get a certain amount, you need to have a certain amount. It'd almost be, I don't remember this in our household, but I was thinking like if you had to like share a can of Coke, Maybe you've had this experience. You First of all, you need a third party to pour that Coke, right? If you're going to share it. But then if you're going to share that, it's got to be poured like right down to the last drop so that everybody, the two parties, or maybe you had more than that. Maybe I'm just thinking Coke because when I was a kid, my dad used to put the Coke in the gun cabinet. Okay, literally. It was <laughs> locked up with the, with the pistol and the other adult drinks. Okay, so soda is like heavy on my mind. But... It's got to be perfectly equal, right? And this is what the believers were, were feeling. They're like, hey, we had to do all this stuff. So why don't they have to do this stuff? And Peter makes it clear to them that, no, we, we couldn't do it. And our calling is not to add that burden to others. And so the, the enticement that religion brings to adding things, 
whether it's things that we do or things that we become, the enticement is there um, to add to it and add to the gospel itself. And so what Peter does is actually recall teaching that Christ had, which we heard before, which was in Matthew 11, right? Where Jesus says, our calling is not to add the burden. The thing that people need to do is come to Christ. And so we don't need to add a burden to them. So we don't want to put before people a list of things where you can kind of keep score of what, you know, how much you've done and how much you haven't done. And that's, that's the beauty. That's the thing that actually attracts many people to religion is like there's clarity there. If there's 10 things that I need to do and I've done seven, I kind of know where my gap is and I can work my way up that gap. And Christ is saying, and Peter is acknowledging here, that doesn't work. So what's the solution? What is the word that Christ has then for us as believers? What is the vision that actually God has called us to, which we want to be in line with as a church as well? And for that, turn a few pages back to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, where we read these verses right at the end of Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 27. Jesus says this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, the calling, this, the simple calling of Christianity is to Christ. It's to Jesus. He says there in verse 28, come to me. We are called not to a religion that has a list of things that you have to do. There's not a list where you have 10 or 100 or 1,000 things. Our calling as believers is to Christ. It's to a person. And, and who is this person? Like, who is Jesus? What is he like? Is he, um, you know, some Godhead who is angry or who is against us, who loves certain people but hates others? Um, is he someone who is um, high and distant from us? Or is he near? What is this God like? Well, we actually get a, a glimpse here from Christ himself. So we've got like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's a good amount of texts that, that are like firsthand accounts of what Jesus's life and ministry was. Um, so like if you wanted to get to know me a little bit, you could definitely go and ask Liz and you could ask her what I was like and she would tell you and maybe tell you like, amazing and good stories about me, only the good ones, right? But you could ask her and you could get a good insight, but you could also ask me and you could ask me what I'm like and you could learn another bit of insight. Well, we, we get a glimpse of Christ through these gospels, but right here in these verses, this is the only time where Christ actually himself reveals what he is like. This is the place where Christ says, if you want to know what I'm like, let me tell you a little bit about me as, you know, one of the Godhead. And he says, when you come to me, you find out that I am gentle and lowly. Christ is gentle and lowly. 
So these two words are powerful descriptions of God. Because remember, in verse 27 there, we started, it says that the Father has given all things over to Christ. Everything has been given over to Christ. All authority, all power, all for Christ to have. And yet here now he describes himself not as like the ultimate power, the one who is like reigning and who's going to be judged. I mean, there are times definitely where, where Christ is described in that way. And, and we know that, that Christ is holy and separate. And that means that those of us who have sin are separated from him. There's, there's a problem that we have. There is a divide between us. But here when Christ wants to reveal himself to us and tell us what he's like, it says that he's gentle. He's not harsh or reactionary. He doesn't fly off the handle or explode. He is humble and gentle. He's the kind of person that you and I would want to be around. We would want to be in his presence. He's lowly, which means he's accessible. He purposefully comes down to be with us. Lowly, he comes down and wants to be in our presence. He's not one who just wants to be away or distance from us. He wants to be near us. He is lowly. This is the calling of the Christian. This is our calling as believers is to be with Jesus. That's the simple calling is to be with him. But Christ knows that we live in a world filled with burdens and weights. And so he, he uses this imagery here of a yoke and in the first century, the, the audience would have understand, would have understood clearly what that meant. I, I included a picture here. If you maybe you've seen this before um, on a farm around here or maybe at like a museum or something. But this is what a yoke is, right? This is that wooden piece goes across the neck and then it comes under that ties two animals together so that they can together do uh, work. Okay, and generally, if you wanted to bring in like a new ox, you know, brand new, kind of new to the job, what you would do is you would tie that new and untested ox to a seasoned, strong veteran ox. Okay, so when Jesus says, um, you know, my yoke, he starts talking about my yoke. This is the picture that is going into everybody's mind who is listening and who is reading this. They're understanding, okay, these two are working together. One is probably more able and more capable than the other. And so Christ here is saying, you are, being, you are being put under a yoke. Whether you choose to be under the yoke of Christ or not, there is some sort of yoke that you are tying yourself to. And so we've talked about this in previous weeks, how um, we have different idols in our lives, whether it's the work that we do or the, the money that we're pursuing or some sort of security or beauty or all these things. But those idols end up becoming a, a weight that, that doesn't help us. It actually drags us down further. And so Christ is saying, you are choosing, at every point in your life, you are choosing a yoke. And he's saying, let me tell you about a yoke that is light, a yoke that is easy. And it's the yoke that is tied to Christ. It is obedience to Christ. And so this paraphrase, I think, puts it nicely. It says this, that Christ is saying, Get in the yoke with me. Let me disciple you. I will bear the weight of your burden. My yoke is good, and you will find rest and companionship in our labor together. 
This is the yoke that Christ is calling us to. Even though there's, there's other yokes that are tempting and they will put us under a burden that we will, most, we will not be able to bear. And now he's saying, here's part of my calling is actually that we will together, we will work together, but I will be the one who will bear the burden. That's the calling, that Christ will be the one who bears the burden. And so the result then in verse 30 we see is that for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the, the message is, is actually quite simple, okay? That Christ's calling is to discipleship, to making disciples, but that when we actually take on that calling, it's not something that we bear. It's not the weight that we are dragging along. We are working with Christ and he is actually bearing the weight. It is, like Bob was saying, it is a work of God's grace, and grace is just undeserved kindness. It is the work that God does on our behalf. So the things that we, the things that we do here at Citizens Church or we do as believers, those are things that we do as a result of God's work and his saving grace in our lives. So I don't know if you've ever seen the movie or read the book by Victor Hugo, Les Miserables, this you know, famous story. And in Les Miserables, you have these you have two characters where the work of grace is impacted on them in two different ways. So the main character, Jean Valjean, is this thief and this robber, and he's taken in by a priest, and in the night he kind of beats the priest up and steals silver and leaves on the road. And on the road, he is taken by uh, the police, and they find this stuff, and they bring him back to the priest. And so this is the moment where he is face to face with the one that he stole from and the one that he hurt. And the priest says, you know, where have you been? You forgot the rest of the silver. And he takes the silver candlesticks from his house and he gives them to Jean in an act of grace. And he doesn't press any charges and he kind of, he forgives him of what he's done to him. And as he's leaving, he kind of leans over to Jean and says, let this moment be a life-changing moment for you. And from that moment on, the rest of the story is the story of Jean Valjean, who is, who is deeply shaken to the core because of the grace that he's experienced. And then as a result of that, his life is continually and regularly shaped. The things that he does are shaped because of the grace that he experienced. But the other character who experiences grace is the police officer named Javert. And he spends his whole life, the whole time he is hunting down Jean Valjean because he is a rule follower. He is one who knows the law and it has been broken. And so he's hunting. And even at his own expense, at the cost of his own life, he is hunting, hunting, hunting for Jean Valjean. And there's even a moment where Jean could have killed him. And because of grace, he lets him go. And this just essentially drives the police officer mad. And by the end, he has got Jean Valjean, but he decides because of, he just does not understand. It also shakes him to the core. He does not understand this grace, and he ends up killing himself. And that's the end of the movie, essentially, the end of the story. And you have here these two characters who are deeply impacted by grace. They are shaken to the core by grace. And yet one responds to it and is changed by it, and the other is not changed at all. Grace can be that way. It can be rejected or it can be 
life-changing. And so as a church, we choose to say we want simple practices. We want directness of expression. We want clarity. So when it comes to what we're about as a church, we want to say we are about the grace of Jesus Christ. We are about lives changed. And the things that we choose to do will point people with clarity to Christ and to what he has done for us. So how do we practice that here? Well, you all should know this, or maybe you've seen this on our website. We basically do three things, right? We do these Sunday morning gatherings as long as we can. You know, the rules keep changing almost every week, but as long as we can, we do these Sunday gatherings together, or we do them online if we need to, where we are gathering to worship Christ through the reading of his scripture, through the breaking of bread, through the songs that we sing, and through the time that we enjoy together. Hopefully someday even hospitality, like some coffee or some things that we can uh, munch on, Um, but we will patiently wait for that day. But all those things we do together in the gathering. We also do missional families, these these families where we come together as um, God's people and we want to get to know each other and care for each other, but also reach out to people around us and pray for each other as we go into our workplaces or we go into our neighborhoods. And then lastly, which we haven't got going yet, but we've talked about sacred communities. These, these smaller groupings and missional families where we can go deeper into discipleship, go deeper into the things that are happening on a heart level. So the gathering, missional families, and sacred communities. And our commitment is to make disciples in all those places and through these simple practices, point people to Christ and draw closer to Christ. We know that we will not be immune from wanting to add things to the gospel. It's just natural for believers to even want to do that, to think that we can add certain things. So we want to regularly remind ourselves of these simple practices that point us to Christ. Because ultimately, our, our goal and our heart is that we be drawn closer to Christ. None of us has been physically in a room with Jesus. Could you imagine that? He walks into citizens, or he walks into your living room. What do you think that experience would be like? Jesus physically in your presence. What do you think his reaction to you would be? Thomas Goodwin, uh, I'll put this uh, quote up here. And uh, it's kind of, it's a bit of a mouthful here. It says, Men are apt to have contrary conceits of Christ, but he tells them his disposition there by preventing such hard thoughts of him to allure them unto him the more. We are apt to think that he, being so holy, is therefore of a severe and sour disposition against sinners and not able to bear them. No, says he, I am meek. Gentleness is my nature and temper. Now, that was written in the 1600s, okay? Part of the reason why I chose that was because I'm like, do we even know what he's saying here, okay? This is, <laughs> you know, this is from the 1600s. This is a different kind of English than what we are used to. But if you actually think about what this author is saying, he's actually trying to get us to think about what, what Christ's experience would be like if you were with him in person, if you were near him. 
He's saying essentially that if Christ was, we tend to put on God, we tend to reflect onto God what we would think he is like. So we would think God is all-powerful, he is separate, he is, he is distinct. He should be like separated from us. You know, like if someone is so powerful and wealthy, they tend to be in mansions. They, they don't tend to be like with us commoner people or they don't go down too many layers, right? And so we often project that onto God and say, this is what God must be like. Sure, he's happy to save me. Sure, he's happy to go to the cross. But if he was in my presence, if he knew what I was really like, the things that I've done, the thoughts that I've had, I think he would maybe recoil a little bit. It would almost be like, you know, if you've ever seen like a young child uh, touch like a slug or something, you would almost like grab onto it like, oh, this is like gooey and nasty and separate from me. And here Thomas Goodwin is trying to get us to understand that what Jesus is saying here when he says, come to me, I'm gentle and lowly. He's essentially saying that Christ is, is not reaching down like we're a, a slug or something to be repulsed by. He's actually coming. He wants to be near us. In his gentleness and lowliness, he wants us to come near to him. Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching sinners and those who have been numbed by suffering. He's calling us in in amazing clarity and simplicity to come to him. And the call that we have is to come to him, to one who is gentle and lowly. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this promise of um, who you are, that you are gentle and lowly and that you've come to be with us and you want to be with us, Lord. And now I just pray that you would help us as individuals and as a church to not put up barriers to Christ, but to be a, a beacon and uh, a voice of clarity in our community that uh, Jesus saves and he saves sinners and he wants to be with us. And we thank you for this calling. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.